As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Restore Fatherhood. A Restore Night Talk by Steve Bahaja. Okay, good evening everybody. I just thought I'd start by telling you how I actually got here today. Okay, so we had a, a little bit of a difficulty getting in. Um, came in by train, okay, and on the way, um, I passed by a bookstore, bought a book, got on the train, and the, the book that I bought was about anti-gravity, and I'm starting to tend towards the sciences, and it was so interesting that I just could not put this book down. Anti-gravity. It gets better, it gets better. I got off the train, went past the Apple store. Past Apple store, and look, my phone was been playing up for weeks. Went in there, thought I'd get an update. You wouldn't believe it, a robbery. A robbery. I was hiding behind the iPads, iPhones. Thought, okay, there's a gap. I make a break for it, cop stops me, goes, no, you go back in there because you're an eyewitness. Alright, alright, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. Okay. That was come on, they're dad jokes. Alright, so now you get it, now you get it. Okay, pretty good. Alright. Um, so you haven't come here to to listen to dad jokes. Um, I've been introduced as a father of nine children. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so that's our family, and it's a growing family. So Joseph and Tara, three weeks ago, they just got married. Um, Anthony and Joanne, last Friday, just got engaged. And... um, we don't know where else the Lord's going to take us, but we're going. And look, my whole point in showing you the family, obviously, is to show off a little bit. But, you know, it can look, when every Christmas we do these um, these Christmas shots every morning. And it's probably the best opportunity I get to get a couple of likes. Last year, Stella said, no way, you're not posting it. She posted it. And I went from five likes to 282. So, anyway. All right, so that's our family. Look, my point is that it can look like a pretty beautiful picture. And you know, every time I look at that, I'm very, very proud. But that's 25 years in the making um, to get there. And next week, tomorrow week, we celebrate 25 years of marriage. So, yeah. so it was, it was, I felt it was a, a big act of providence that the Lord allowed me to, to be here tonight and to really have to reflect on what it means to be a father and a husband. So thank you to the Culture Project girls for this opportunity. It's a real privilege. And I'm sure that the Lord in his weaving has given me this opportunity to talk to you tonight. So I can be a little bit vulnerable and just really tell you that um, my journey um, of getting here. So the topic tonight is seeking the face of the Father. And 
it wasn't one of those, I suppose, cliche terms that, you know, I'm trying to attract people into the talk. It's my real story. It's my real story. And the way that I want to break it apart is in three parts. So the first one is my own experience with my own dad and also with my two grandfathers, so my dad's dad and obviously my mum's dad. The second stage is then moving into my own experience of being a dad and again being a husband and also having to go through all the ups and downs of fatherhood, starting with infants, going to the teenage years, and then actually getting to the point where, um, especially our sons, um, started to be men, and I started to get that that pushback, um, which was a result of my style of parenting. And then the, the last bit was through that failure, at times being on my knees, um, being purified, coming to know that my only recourse was to actually turn to God my Father, and then finding out that I did not know God as Father. And then being able to look back and to look at all those experiences where um, I've been set up in that way. Okay, so I do want to pray, and my special prayer tonight's all about fatherhood, but Pope John Paul II says that all fatherhood and all motherhood comes from God being our Father. Because as we image God in our masculinity and our femininity, it's together that we come to, to image God as Father. So, I'd like to say a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Mother, you know God as Father. You are His most beautiful daughter. And through his favour and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you brought forth the word, Jesus Christ. We pray to you, Mother, that you can help us to know God as Father. Be our Mother and lead us to know his face. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sins, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Queen of Peace, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so that's um, that's me, and that's why my wife married me. That's my dad. And that's my um, my grandfather. So that's his dad. And I was six, I was sixteen in that photo. And you can see I haven't grown too much, so you can imagine how tall my dad is. Okay. And that was the second time in my life that I'd ever met my grandfather on my dad's side. So my dad came to Australia when he was sixteen years old, and he said that he came to Australia because he knew that he was going to have to be a stonemason because that's what my grandfather was. And he said he hated dust. So he's come to Australia as a 16-year-old. He's come out to live with his oldest brother 
and his oldest brother makes his money and then goes back after two years. They're one of 13 children. My dad meets my mum, falls in love, he stays out here. So he's the only one in his family that lives in Australia. So you can see it was, it was pretty exciting for me whenever dad took us back to go and visit his, his parents. But my grandfather, he was a pretty reserved guy. And the first time I went when I was 13, I met him. He kind of patted me on the head. And I was on my way. I met all my cousins. It was summer in Malta, Mediterranean. And in the three weeks that I was there, if I had three interactions with my grandfather, that was a lot. The stories that my, that my dad tells me of, of his father, um, well, the first thing I should tell you, his nickname was the Red One. He's a pretty fair guy, but they were mostly talking about his cheeks. Because my grandfather <coughs> liked to drink. And it was quite interesting to always hear my dad talk about his dad. And I knew that he loved him immensely. But it always seemed that the stories that he was saying about his dad was that he was either hiding in the cupboard or hiding under the bed or making sure that he wasn't home when his father was home. Because every time that his dad had a bit of a drink, he, um, he did a little bit more than just whack my dad on the backside. And <coughs> interwoven with that though, the whole time he would also talk about all the times that he went with his dad to trap birds. Now when you say trap birds, they're not doing something like animal cruelty, but Malta being where it is, the birds from North Africa would, on their way to Europe, um, would drop in Malta, see if they get some water, and they would keep going. And all the Maltese, because they had nothing else to do, because Malta's only 40 miles by 20 miles, you know, there's not many soccer grounds and that, they would trap the birds, because they loved their whistling, and then they would, you know, that would be their hobby. But Dad would always talk about these times that he would be able to go with his father and trap these birds. And I could see every time he talked about it, he would talk about that he was a son after four girls that had the privilege of going with his dad. And I knew that there was a real connection there and that he loved it in spite of all the other difficulties he was facing. Now, the one thing for me is that, if I can see a few friends here, some, if some people come to our house, you actually come in and then when you turn right and our laundry is there, we have a really big wall and we just have a whole heap of family photos there. I think at the last count up to 232 photos. Just love it, all family. But this was the first photo that I hung up. This was the first photo that I hung up. Because even though I didn't know my grandfather, I wanted to know him. And in spite of any difficulties that I had with my own dad, I wanted that connection with him. And so of all the photos that I have, besides our wedding photo, this stuff, this is one of my favourites. Because it tells me, in a way, where I come from and, and where I am and who I am. One thing also about my grandfathers is that my mum's grandfather was my hero. 
Um, whereas I'm short, my grandfather was a big man. He was a big man, God is his soul. And every time that I would go there on a Saturday morning, it was like I was, I had his full attention. Not that it was like, I did, I had his full attention. And he would, like, all I ever used to do is go there, help him. He had 60 rabbits. I don't know if you know Maltese rabbits. Okay, so three rabbits were eating for Sunday lunch. And my job was just to go in there and sweep where he had the rabbits and pick up all the rabbit droppings. And then when it was spring, I'd get the pump pack and spray all his fruit trees. And he had a pristine yellow Monaro. And I would love to go and just wash it for him. And then when I became a mechanic, um, I saw that he had a little tear on a piece of vinyl and I you know, had that pleasure of going to get it and fixing it for him. And he would respond. You know, he'd give me 50 cents here, a pat on the head here, give me a hug. And he was my hero because he took the time out to know me. Now, I haven't talked about my dad. My dad, even to this day, would help anybody. And I used to see him. He was in St. Vinny's. He took us to the nursing home. He'd make little flowers for the old ladies. He'd be on night watch in the parish. But he was a strict man. And the same thing happened that the stories he was telling me about his dad were being played out in my life. And, you know, when you say you get belted, I experienced the belt. And this belt, I hated it. It was a thick belt. And eventually, I was able to cut it up and destroy it. I hated it. But I saw that as being pretty normal. And most times, I, I did just, well, there you go. I did deserve it. Did I deserve it? This is the, this is the whole point. But I know from what my dad said, it was the same thing happening all over again. It had become normative that this is the way that we grow up as disciplined men. Now, I just told you about my grandfather, who was my hero. When I moved into becoming a dad myself, and... I would take our own children to my grandfather's place and they were they were, they were well behaved. So you probably saw in that photo that our first sons were triplets. And, you know, they were full of life. They were full of life. But sometimes they would push the boundaries. And I was a hard man as well. And I would go to my grandfather's and he would, I would say, sit down, boys and they would sit down. I would say, don't touch that, and they wouldn't touch it. And my grandfather, his name is Nunnulmaisi, that means Thomas, he would see me do that, and he would say, you are a good father. He'd say, cross it. Excellent. And so he was positively reinforcing the way that I was bringing up my boys in that strict manner. That's what I had learned. Thank God I had Stella, and that wasn't normative in her family. And I would say, that's how you bring them up, strict, disciplined. 
And it worked. Or so I thought. Going up more, we were able to, at one stage, go to Malta. Now, I was finding that even though things seemed quite settled, I really had had all this time an identity crisis. Because what had happened with my dad growing up and, and being so strict with me was that he had pushed me away. So by the time that I was in year three, I distinctly remember I did everything I could so I wouldn't be home. I would pretend I was going to do homework with my friends and I would go um, to my friend's place or we'd go on our BMX bikes and we would take off somewhere. And I was happiest when my dad was never home. So, and I, I still remember the feeling. Mum would say, oh, dad's gonna be at the, the racing pigeon pub tonight. I was elated. I felt freedom because my dad wasn't going to be home. I never thought that this was wrong, but in hindsight, I remember looking at some cousins that I had and how they would interact with some of my favourite uncles. I would be jealous because they would go up to my uncles and interact naturally. They would say the right things and my uncles would high-five them. And they were cool uncles, but I didn't know how to interact. I did not have any skills in that way. And I, I remember that I yearned for this, but I never pictured that I'd want to do this with my dad. When I was 13, I remember think, going back and thinking that there was a time when one of my aunties hugged me. And I just wanted to stay in this embrace. And I, and I look back and think, why? Why would that have seemed so special? You know, to, to the point where a, a simple hug would make me look back to it my whole life. Even to this day, I, I remember it, the exact spot where it happened. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. So this identity crisis made me always think, well, you know, who am I? And when I grew up, you know, I was in a, a school which where half of us were Maltese, and we were very safe and very, you know, proud to be Maltese. But, but I suppose years of being called Wog, you know, I suppose it has, you know, some impact on you to the extent that I always thought, well, if I go back to Malta and I can relate to my Bahaja cousins there, because I didn't have any Bahaja cousins here, as I said, my dad's family was there, I said, I'll find out who I am. So when I was 36, um, when we were 36, we were able to take all our children to Malta. And we decided to try to live there for a year. And I thought, I'm going to find out who I am. I'm going to love it there. Everyone's going to accept me. You know, all my cousins first of all. And we did. We had a great time. But there was one point where, you know, I was an out and proud Maltese now. And my cousin said, you're actually not Maltese. I said, what do you mean? I said, I said my parents are both from... Rabat. Rabat is like a village. I said, we're actually pure-bred Maltese, you know? We're actually pure-bred Rabat team from this village. 
And I said, mate, you weren't born here. I said, you're joking. I said, you're joking, right? They said, no. They said, you are a Barani. And a Barani, I knew what that meant because they used to call, you know, a lot of the Moroccans and a lot of the refugees that were coming in at that time, Baranis. I said, I'm not a Barani. I said, and I'm saying it exactly how I say it, like defensively. I said, I'm not a Barani. They said, no, you're a Barani. And I thought, I couldn't believe it. And I remember I told Stella, and she was indignant. And um, she told her mum, and her mum was indignant, so I got some support. But um, it, was, it was just very interesting. So I didn't find my identity in that way. It's the next picture. Okay. Oh, can we go back one? one more? That's my, that's my number mice. Now, I, just, I picked this picture here because that, that truck there was one of the trucks that were leftovers after the Second World War. And my grandfather, who was dirt poor, dirt poor, him and his brother, any, anything that they had in savings, they both put it into buying that truck. And so he had one of the first trucks going around Malta. But because he had 13 kids, because he was renting, he didn't save a cent. His whole life was spent for his family. He would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, go get the water for my grandmother so she could wash the clothes, have water for cooking. Then he'd go do his truck driving, come back, and then he would plough his fields and, and do all his growing at night. But he was my exact age there as I am now. But he was 45 there. Didn't have a cent to his name, except that he had given his whole life for the well-being of his family. I can see now that I was trying to take on his identity because before I did teaching, for 10 years I was a, a truck mechanic. And I remember when I, I got that okay to be an apprentice truck mechanic that I didn't care about telling my dad. I ran to go and tell my grandfather. I ran to tell him because I wanted my grandfather to be proud of me. Yeah. So that's us. That wasn't the cousin that top. That cousin on that side there. He didn't. He accepted me as a Maltese. <laughs> that's why he's in the family. So he, he accepted me. His name is Omar, but he does like Yamahas and I like Hondas. So I don't talk to him anymore. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we spent that year there. And we got to that stage, so you can see these boys here. So are they 14, 13? Mm. About that age? Yeah. Anyway, so they, they had started to experience that freedom in Malta. Because we were living a pretty free summer Mediterranean lifestyle. And, you know, we, in Malta, you can just do a lot more things without you know, being too scared to go out at night and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when we, we came back, a couple of years passed, and we got to that stage... Um, I don't know if your mums have said it to you yet. It's that stage when your mum says to you, just wait till you have kids this age. Okay, so when I was 14, my mum would always say that to me. And now we, we were having boys that were at that stage where when you wanted to control them or influence them with discipline or threats, it just stopped working. It stopped working. So we were starting to get... Um, 
a, a fair bit of pushback. And it kind of survived um, because they couldn't answer back because they were still they were still scared. It was through fear. It was through fear. But I remember distinctly one evening we're playing five aside soccer, six aside soccer, and we're on the same team. And I had words to say for one of my sons. And it didn't go well, and he took off. And we didn't see him. By midnight, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, we're freaking out. He's a 19-year-old son, but it never happened before. And you mentioned before about the rollers. I took a Rottweiler and I was walking the streets, thinking that he'd been mugged. I went down to a local creek to see if maybe he'd been mugged and his body dumped. The things that parents start to think. And it started to really hit me. What am I doing? What am I doing? Not long after, one of our other sons went out with a girl. He didn't come back to one o'clock in the morning. I had a massive go at him. And he exploded. He's now a man. He exploded. And he said, I'm leaving. And he packed up all his stuff and he left. And I went chasing him. He was on a job site. I went chasing him. And I said, what's the game? I said, you can come back. I said, I'll change. And he said, if I come back, I'm going to end up hating you. He never came back. Another point. Another sun. Another explosion. And then he said to me, he said, our relationship is toxic. Now, a week before, I had come home to tell Stella that I've been having conversations at work with some toxic people. And then all of a sudden, he's turned the words back at me. And I said, I'll change. Hands up. And it's gone too. So here I am, a failure. I went to a wedding and the groom's talking about his dad. And he's saying what a great man he is, what a great influence he is. And I started bawling my eyes out. And I'm starting to think, my grandfather, my dad, me. Same story, the whole way, the whole way. I had a chance to go to the Philippines. My sister was a nun there. And talking this over with my brother and my sister, and we all had the same issues. And we went to a place for healing as brothers and sisters, and we asked for healing in that way. And things started to change. I turned to Mary. I went, I don't know if you know the novena, undo of knots. I was able to ask people to pray that for me. And I started to feel my heart changing. I went to um, a healing night that I'd organised for the other parishioners. And I didn't go with tissues, but I really needed them because that night 
everything came out. And the Lord allowed that healing to flow over me. But my problem was I still didn't know how to hug. And I knew that somewhere along the line, what I had not experienced in that physical affirmation, in what my dad probably had never experienced in his physical affirmation, I had never affirmed my own children. I could hug my daughters, no problem. But I had never hugged my own sons. And I knew that I had to do this. But the problem was, and I couldn't understand it, I had an aversion to it. Something inside of me didn't allow me to do it. And I knew that if I didn't do this, how was I going to show them tangibly that I love them? So I started to go up to a picture of Jesus with the Divine Mercy Sacred Heart image, and I would put my hand, this is an enlarged image, but I would put my hand right there, and I would pray and pray every day, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make my heart like unto yours. Very simple prayer. Over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. And sometimes I would even lean my head I was devastated. I mean, I could not do this. But over time, the Lord just gave me that grace. We went to another wedding where the same thing happened. The groom praised his dad. It was the most beautiful speech. And by this time, my kids knew, get the Kleenex for dad, he's going to lose it again. But my son came over, the one that had called me toxic. And he came and hugged me. And I was able to hug him back. And I started bawling even more. And he said, Dad, just relax. <laughs> but it was the greatest gift, the greatest gift that the Lord ever gave me, besides my wife and my other children, obviously. Disclaimer. But it was the greatest gift because it allowed me, it freed me up. It freed me up to start hugging and affirming. And I'd already started to make the choice that every time that one of my children had done something well, to affirm it, to hug them, to bring them in, to bless them. Any chance that I had, I tried to be physical with them so they didn't have to guess. Because I always loved my kids. I always loved my kids. But I didn't know how to show them that I love them. So yes, I'm still playing catch-up. Still playing catch-up with the oldest three, the triplets. Um, Thomas, we're pretty tight. Luke, our youngest, you know, he gets so many of the hugs. Girls get heaps of hugs. They, I like getting hugs from them. Um, but, but I'm healing. I'm healing. So it kind of comes full circle now to my dad. Now, just back to the, I'm just about done. Um, no, to the um, Fathers of St. Joseph, that CD cover, that one there. A guy at church gave me seven of these CDs to give away. I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give them away. I thought, I better listen to it first. This guy here, Devin Chat, he's a brother to me. I don't know him from a bar of soap, 
but I've read everything that he's ever written. And what he said is that you, Dad, are the father's face to your kids. And if you don't show them that face, how are they going to know the face of God? How are they going to know what God the Father is like? And that changed my life. That changed my life. Because this is kind of like interwoven in the whole story that I've told you. And that hit me like a tongue of bricks. I don't know. I don't know God the Father. I don't know God the Father because I don't even know my dad. My dad doesn't know who God the Father was either because he didn't know it from his dad. And who knows if he knew it from his dad? This intergenerational hurt that we all needed to be healing from. To cut a long story short, part of this guy's apostolate is for men and for dads to come together to actually learn who God the Father is. Guess who was the first person? When we started the group, the first person that came with my dad, because he's hurt against Paul. And when we have our discussions, you know, it's hard because you know what you're trying to learn how to be God's face to your kids. But there's my dad right in front of me. And we know all the hurts that we've shared in the past. But in that hurt and naming the hurt, there's healing. That's in any hurt that we've experienced, to name it and then to share it and to hug. So it's still hard to hug my dad, um, but we try. He wants to hug more than me, so he's a little bit further. Yeah. But, you know, it's a bit hard. Yeah. I haven't started even talking about my mum yet. She's not a hugger either. But I try to hug her. She's a little skinny little baby. I'm a hugger. So I love it. Yeah. So, look, all you young guys here, you know, you're all called to fatherhood, whether it's in the marriage state, whatever state you're in, you're all called to be icons of God the Father as men. Affirmation starts now. You can affirm anyone. We make that choice. We stop looking this way and we start looking at the other. We start to know the other, see the other person as God's mystery, that person unique, unrepeatable, that God loves them infinitely. We start training for that now. You know, don't be worried to hug someone. You know, know that person as a brother. I met Lachlan two weeks ago. This guy is special. You know, he gave me a hug. I gave him a hug. It was awesome, you know, Pitwater, I didn't even know where Pitwater was, you know, so you helped heal me that day. You know, the Lord sends us what we need, sends us who we need, you know, affirmation, don't worry about hugging, and the last thing is, make sure that every day you go to the tent of meeting Moses in the desert, would go and meet God. 
the tent of the meeting. We need to go to the tent of the meeting. We need to see God's face. We need God to reveal his face to us so that we can reveal his face to everybody else. Thank you. That was Steve Mahajo with Restore Fatherhood. The Restore Nights are an event hosted by The Culture Project Australia. For more from The Culture Project Australia and for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.